Hi, I'm Catherine Price, and screen life balance is essential to my well-being. Welcome to the show. This week, firstly, I want to thank everyone that has supported, shared, liked, reviewed. It means a lot, and it feels like we're really starting a community. To everyone that's reached out on social, in the DMs, telling us what's worked for them, what they're going through, please keep it up. Share your experience because we can all relate. And of course, the hope is we can all support each other as well through this wild time we all find ourselves in. I personally have been someone that has always looked for a silver bullet, that quick fix. And I'm a sucker for the next big workout, the perfect meditation app. But the truth is, I know it doesn't exist. There are though proven principles of how our brain, body, and our mind work best. And that's what Wellbeings hopes to uncover, all backed 100% by science. Today on the podcast, we are talking about our phones. These amazing things, I mean, there's a good chance you're listening to this right now on one, but I think everyone out there can relate to the question, who is in control, you or the phone? Today, we're going to learn how to change that relationship with the amazing founder of ScreenLifeBalance.com and New York Times bestselling author of the book, How to Break Up with Your Phone. But just before we start, this wouldn't have been possible without the support of our friends at AIA, who've been on the path with us on this project really right from the start. Like what we're trying to do there, AIA Vitality Platforms, a fully science-backed health and well-being program. It's about making small incremental changes so we can all live healthier, longer, better lives. And now to today's episode, Catherine Price. She wrote a global best-selling book, How to Break Up with Your Phone. And let me tell you, the findings are scary. Is our relationship with our phone the most toxic in our life? The science we learned today breaks down everything from dopamine hijacking, I didn't even know what that was, to really breaking down how we can spend less time looking down and more time living life. I hope you enjoy and get something out of my conversation with the wonderful Catherine Price. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Of course, the founder of Screen Life Balance and this little book here, How to Break Up With Your Phone. And I want to start there because when I was reading this book, everyone that saw the cover, they smiled. They laughed. They get it. It's universal. This problem that everyone can relate to, uh, how did we lose control? (laughs) That's a big question to start with. (laughs) There's a number of reasons we have lost control to our phones. Most recently, we have the pandemic, of course, which has forced so much of our lives onto screens to begin with. But even before that, screen time and particular phone usage was an issue. And there's a number of factors coming into play here. One is that the design of many of our favorite apps is deliberately engineered in a way that is intended to hijack our attention for the simple reason that that is how a lot of the companies that make these apps make money. So for example, the more time you spend on Facebook or one of the apps it owns, such as WhatsApp or Instagram, the more time there is for Facebook to show you ads and to gather data about you so that it can show ever more targeted ads in the future. So every moment you spend on an app like that is essentially a minute that you are spending making money for somebody else. So there's a lot of very sophisticated psychological techniques you can use to hijack people's attention. But that is the one of the primary reasons that it's so hard to look away from our screens is that they're engineered to be difficult to look away from. Another problem that we face is that we keep our phones in our pockets. So if you speak to addiction psychiatrists, they'll talk about ease of access. If you're trying to smoke fewer cigarettes or drink less alcohol, Pretty much the last thing you want to do is have a pack of cigarettes in your pocket and a bunch of beer in your fridge. But we're dealing with a device and these apps that are deliberately engineered to capture our attention, and we're carrying them with us at all times. 
in our pockets. Um, and this is especially concerning when you consider that they are deliberately modeled in many cases after slot machines. And slot machines are widely considered to be some of the most addictive machines ever to have been invented. So it makes sense. Yeah. But it's important for us to fight back. Yeah, well, look, I mean, as I said here with the phone right there, always always in arm's reach. And I, I guess I want to kind of ask you on a personal level, when you started this journey, even if you're prepared to share it right now, how bad was your relationship with this little thing? It's hard to quantify one's relationship with the phone because something that seems normal is actually horrible. So I think I've had a normal relationship with my phone, but that is absolutely horrible if you consider it in the context of what I wanted to be doing with my life. I've never been someone who cares about social media. (laughs) Unfortunately for my book agent, I just don't care that much about it. But I really like doing things like looking at the news or uh, before I was reading, sorry, before I was writing How to Break Up With Your Phone, I was looking at eBay searches because we were renovating our kitchen and I was searching for doorknobs. So of all things, doorknobs were my issue. I wanted antique doorknobs. I know that's weird. We all have (laughs) our foibles, but um, it wasn't great. And the thing that really pushed me over the edge was that I had a baby and I started to notice there were these moments when I was with her often late at night and I would be looking at my phone as she looked up at me. And I saw that as it would appear to someone from the outside and it really made me upset. It was not how I wanted to be interacting with my daughter, what I wanted to be modeling for her in terms of a human relationship. And it wasn't how I wanted to be living my own life. So that is really what inspired me to start the process that led to me writing How to Break Up With Your Phone. Yeah, and you talk about different excuses. I, I told a few people we were going to be having this chat and people were like, I could never do that. I'd, I need to keep touch with the outside world and I'll be forgotten. I'll lose all my friends. I mean, throughout this process, you must have heard just the full gambit of excuses, right, about why I cannot break up with my phone. I hear a lot of excuses when it comes to breaking up with people's phones. And the first thing I say to people is, okay, take a deep breath. When we say break up, we're not saying dump. We are not getting rid of our phones unless that's what you actually want to do. But for 99.99% of people, they're not going to get rid of their phones. Just as if you break up with a person, you're not saying I'm never going to date another human being. You're just saying there was something about that relationship that was not good for me, that I did not enjoy, and I want to set it aside and create or find something better. Same thing with our phones. So our goal here is to create an intentional relationship with technology over which we have control instead of allowing that power to reside in the hands of the app makers who have a vested interest in getting us to spend a lot of our lives staring at their screens. What I also tell people is, yes, screens are enjoyable in many cases, and they're also useful and downright necessary, especially in our COVID world. So again, we are not trying to get rid of them. With that said, I think most people would also admit, almost in the same breath, they don't feel so great about their relationship with their screens. They probably are feeling they spend an awful lot of time on them. They're probably concerned about their partner or their children. To which I say, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, even for someone whose career and livelihood depends on being on a device. There's still probably some things that you could reduce so that you can open up more time in your life for other things that bring you meaning or joy. So there's always work that we can do. Yeah, before we kind of dig into the work, because I want people to have real strong take-homes, I just want to dig into that. My sister and I call it doom scrolling, right? And it's just this, it takes over and you feel so bad at the end of it. You feel so guilty, this time wasting. But I think where we need to start is going easy on ourselves, right? Like being kind to ourselves because these, you know, incredible pieces of technology are designed to be sticky. I think it's very important not to blame ourselves when it comes to the time we spend on technology. Yes, obviously, there's changes we can proactively make, but we are also up against a very formidable adversary 
in the form of the people who are designing the apps that we use that tend to suck us in. I call these slot machine apps. And that is, as I alluded to, because they are deliberately modeled after slot machines. So how do you get people who are otherwise smart and rational people to spend all of their spare seconds on your device? Well, you borrow techniques straight from slot machines and you design your products in a way that encourages our brains to release the, a chemical called dopamine, which simply put is basically our, way, our brain's way of recording when something is worth doing again. It's a salience indicator. And if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, you obviously need dopamine. It helps us remember to do things that are crucial for the survival of our species, like eat and reproduce. But the trick with dopamine is it doesn't have judgment attached. It's not like, oh, that's actually a waste of your time. You shouldn't do that. It just says, ooh, there was a dopamine trigger. Dopamine was released. Now I've taught my brain that that's worth doing again. And this is, makes it very easy to design, I would say, addictive products. All you do is bake these dopamine triggers into your product's design so that when a person looks at their phone, it triggers dopamine. And that encourages this idea that you should check again and again. And I believe that once you start to know what some of the dopamine triggers are, first of all, you'll see them everywhere on your phone and app, apps. But second, you'll be able to reduce the dopamine triggers and take back a bit of control. So three that are just useful to think about off the top of our heads. Bright colors are a huge dopamine trigger. So if you think about, say, a bright red raspberry against the green of a bush, the bright red is a dopamine trigger. If you look at notifications on your phone, it's exact same bright red, which also happens to be very similar, at least in the States, to the color of stop signs. And in all cases, to blood, it's a very deliberately chosen color that's there to stimulate dopamine. You also have unpredictability, which is an absolutely enormous dopamine trigger. You might think we'd want to do things more compulsively if we knew that they always had a guaranteed positive outcome. But as anyone who's a sports fan knows, it's a lot more fun to not know what the outcome is. So if you can have a product that somehow is unpredictable, you're going to get people to come back for more. And what is it unpredictable in terms of doing? Well, it's unpredictable in terms of giving us rewards, which is another dopamine trigger. So in a casino, the reward is obviously money. But in the case of our phones, you can have rewards in the form of social affirmation, such as a like or a comment, or the receipt of any kind of new information. Novelty is a huge dopamine trigger. So once you start to go through the list of known and established dopamine triggers, you will start to notice how they're being used on our phones to manipulate our biochemistry into getting us to keep coming back again and again for more. In short, if we feel bad about the amount of time we're spending on our phones and screens, it's really important to recognize that there are such powerful forces working against us. And it's totally useless to waste our time being angry at ourselves for following what our brain subconsciously is getting us to do. I have a background in mindfulness, and I use that a lot in how to break up with your phone and a lot of my work with screen life balance, this idea that our goal really should be to non-judgmentally be aware of what we're doing in any particular moment and ask ourselves how it makes us feel so that we can be more intentional about what we do next, not be ourselves. I love the phrase you use, you know, in the book, hijacking our dopamine, you know, and that really sort of landed on me. One of the things I do liken it to, and I want your take on this is, you know, when, when the year starts and people, I'm going to join the gym, I'm going to get in shape, you know, and I feel that when I've talked to people about this book, they're like, yeah, that's great. And then after a month or two, you fall back into the habits and all of a sudden it's one in the morning and you're doom scrolling and you're mad at yourself. You know, what, what do you say, what is the way through that? Well, habits are impossible to break and very hard to change. So if you find yourself not sticking to your intentions, 
on February 1st, welcome to everyone else. No one is doing that. And I would say when it comes to our phones, I think there's two primary reasons that you might fail, if you will, in your attempts to change this habit. Um, one is that they are just ubiquitous and we haven't set boundaries with them. And the second is that we haven't figured out any alternatives that we want to spend our time on instead. So in terms of boundaries, we are keeping them in our pockets. Ease of access is a huge issue. Most of us sleep with our phones next to our beds and we use them as alarm clocks. Think about it. If your phone is your alarm clock, you have to touch the phone first thing in the morning in order to silence the alarm. Therefore, you're guaranteeing it will be the first thing you look at in the morning. We don't have any kind of social etiquette when it comes to not having phones out at the dinner table or in meetings. There's just very few boundaries. So that's one issue that gets in the way of us sticking to our intentions. The second thing is if you're going to change a habit, you don't want to rely on willpower. Willpower is a horrible way to change a habit. What you want to do is make it as easy as possible to change your habit and stick to the new habit. And the easiest way to do that is have a new habit you're excited about. So if you're going to be trying to cut back on the time you spend on your phone, you need to have something you'd rather be doing because then it doesn't have to do with willpower at all. You just would rather be doing the other thing. You won't even want to be on your phone. For example, I realized in my background, I've got this a ukulele and like a drum, a drum pad. And the reason those are there is because one of the things I've started to do with the time I used to spend on my phone is to practice more music. I've got a background in piano. As a result of my writing of How to Break Up With Your Phone, I picked up guitar and then that led to the drums. Ukulele, I know three chords on, that's just kind of sitting there. But as a result, now when I have this urge and this craving to reach for my phone, I have an easy alternative for myself that I know makes me happier while I'm doing it and after. So I don't have to worry about my willpower. Yeah, and you you talk about uh, your willpower is such a powerful thing. But then life can get in the way. And you talk about this last year and a half and the pandemic. And I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued to know, are you seeing that habits are getting worse? Because people are slowing down. And that was one of the silver linings of, of the last year and a half. Are we using our phones more or less than before the world changed? I think that since the pandemic, we are definitely using phones and other screens more in part out of necessity, because obviously if you're in lockdown, the only way that you're going to have a meeting with someone is over some sort of screen. The question now, as things begin to open up, I mean, hopefully for good, but as they begin to open up is what do we want to do going forward? I see us as being at a very pivotal moment that I think is being squandered in many cases that I'm trying to encourage everyone, including myself, to, to stop and take more advantage of. If we can interact with human beings in person again, then how much time do we want to spend on our phones and our screens? Again, I'm hugely thankful for technology, especially in the past year and a half. I would be in such worse mental shape if I didn't have my phone and video calls and ways to connect with people. But now there are alternatives. So Do I think people are spending more time on their screens now than ever? Yes. (laughs) Do I think that we're at risk of just sticking with those new habits? Yes, I do. But do I also think there's a huge opportunity for those who choose to take it? Yes, because if the pandemic clarified nothing else, it's what we miss, like the things that are important to us. And so I would encourage people to just think for a minute, what did you miss the most during lockdown and during the pandemic? What do you long for? Because those are the things that matter to you. 
Some of those might be achievable on a screen, which is great, but many might not. And I think we need to prioritize those. Yeah. And I think that just to kind of shock people a little bit, give, give us a sense of how much time we, we do spend on our phone. Before the pandemic, the average person was spending about four hours a day just on their phones. So that's not laptops. That's not your desktop. That's not your tablet. It's not television. Just on your phones. And if you do the math on that, that adds up to nearly 60 full days a year, full 24-hour days a year. Um, it's about a quarter of your waking life. And one of the statistics that I just can't believe, and I have to recalculate every time I think about it, is that that adds up to a total of nine months of 40-hour work weeks, 36, 40-hour work weeks. How is that possible? It doesn't make any sense. But a lot of this time is just in little increments. We don't even notice until it's gone, until we actually do the math. And then when you when you compound it, though, and you put it all together, you just talk on how much that shifts, whether it be our attention span, you know, our enjoyment of life, um, creativity. I have been increasingly shocked and appalled by the effects of our screen time the more research I do. I would have hoped I would start to feel better about it or feel like I was being alarmist and instead the other direction. Again, I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with screens or technology, but I think that there's real there's a lot of concern in the fragmentation of our attention that is happening as a result of always having this alternate world in our pocket at arm's reach at all times. There's a woman named Linda Stone, who's a tech expert who coined the term continuous partial attention, which is just what it sounds like, paying attention to a lot of stuff continuously. The problem is that the human brain actually can't multitask. We cannot think two things at the same time or do two cognitively demanding things at once. When we try to do that, when we try to multitask, it exhausts our brains and it has effects on all sorts of things, ranging from our productivity and obviously attention spans to our creativity, our ability to form and store memories, our relationships, because people don't feel good when you're not actually present with them, Mm. our self-esteem, posting stuff to Instagram to just get likes and turning your life into a performance. Certainly your mental health rates of anxiety and depression are hugely on the rise. I mean, even more so now because of COVID, but huge spike, especially in teenagers after around 2008, 2010, which is around when Instagram and social media really exploded. One thing I'm particularly fascinated by is the effect that the stress of screens, by which I mean the hypervigilance we all have about worrying we're going to miss something, the effect that that might be having on our cortisol levels. Cortisol is the stress hormone that's there to help us run away from physical threats like a lion. But it's well established that if you have elevated cortisol over long periods of time, it raises our risks for health conditions, all sorts of health conditions ranging from obesity, type 2 diabetes, stroke, Alzheimer's, even cancer. So I think over the long run, it's kind of an open question to wonder what the effect is of adding this stress caused by hypervigilance into our lives and allowing that to stay constant for years on end. Well, there's no doubt that these things improve our lives in so many ways, but you know, as, as you're pointing out, they could also be killing us. I hesitate to be too dramatic, but yes, I mean, I think that there's no question that our screens are affecting us. In some ways, they're having wonderful effects. They're certainly helping us connect with people from afar. They're helping us learn things. They're helping us discover new information, listen to music, take photos, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also this downside. And I think that it's very important that we pay more attention to what those potential potential negative consequences might be so that we can become more intentional about how we use our devices to keep the good parts and then minimize or eliminate the uses that are actually causing us harm. 
One of the things, um, Catherine, that I, that I love that you said is like, how do we shift this phone from a temptation to an obstacle that's helping us live our best life? Um, that, that, that distinction is so powerful, isn't it? I think it's a very powerful distinction to think about your phone, not as a temptation, but as an obstacle that's impeding your ability to live the way you want to live. I think that the mental shift that can happen is very similar to what happens if you're trying to change the way you eat and you switch shift from a diet mentality where it's all about restriction to just realizing that you actually feel better when you eat foods that are good for you. Once you realize that, you kind of no longer want to binge on potato chips or whatever you guys call them, crisps. <laughs> you just don't have those cravings. One thing I recommend that people do is to start making changes both to their mindset and then actually on their phones and in their physical environments to help them become more aware of how they're using their phones and then to limit the way that they use their phones so that the phone becomes less tempting. I think, Catherine, the, the, the one thing we want to do more than anything is give people an actionable plan, right? Uh, yeah. People are overwhelmed right now. No one out there goes, I'm super happy with my relationship with my phone. Everyone wants to change it on some level. So while we've got you, the ability for you to give us some hacks or some tips that we can kind of work through uh, would be incredible. So first things first, one of the main reasons people have trouble is because we focus on the hacks to start without thinking of a broader philosophical framework. So here's what people should do if they actually want to succeed in making change. First, you have to become aware of your own habits. You can't change a habit if you don't know you have a habit. It would be like trying to quit smoking if you didn't even realize you smoked. Right now, our phones and our habits around our phones are so ingrained that we all have had the experience of finding our phones in our hands and not knowing how they got there. That's because we're not even aware of the habit loops that we're in. One suggestion I have for people is to put a rubber band around your phone or a hair tie, some kind of impediment that causes you to pause when you reach for your phone because part of your brain is like, why is there a band around my phone? And that moment of wondering what that band is there for is the reminder to notice that you've picked up your phone. Very important step. Then the next step is actually to investigate why you picked up your phone. I developed an exercise that I call WWW, is short for what for, why now, and what else that people can use. As a side note, I have resources, including prompts for this people can use on their phones on my website for free, uh, screenlifebalance.com. But so WWW, the what for is pretty much what it sounds like. You ask yourself, what did you pick up your phone for? What was your purpose? Did you have a purpose? Was it to check your email? Was it to check the news? Was it to call someone? Then you can ask, your, maybe you didn't have a purpose at all, but if you figure out a purpose, you then can ask yourself, okay, well, why now? Why did you do it right now? It could have been because there was something time sensitive, like an actual message you had to respond to. But chances are that in many cases, there actually was an emotional cue. You were feeling anxious and you wanted some kind of soothing. You were feeling bored and you wanted a distraction. You were stuck on your work project and you wanted to think about something else. You were lonely and you wanted a connection. Once you figure out that, this is a very important step. Once you figure out what your brain was actually after, you can then move on to the final step, the what else, which is to ask yourself, well, what else could I do in this moment? in order to achieve the same reward, give my brain what it's after. In some cases, you might realize, I actually don't want to do anything. I just want to have a moment of stillness, which is a very important thing to give our brains once in a while, a break from constant overload. You might realize there's another way to get to that reward. If you were lonely, you might decide, oh, I could call my friend or walk over if you're at work and back in work, talk to a coworker instead of checking social media. And maybe you'll decide after all this, there is no what else. You actually want to be on your phone. And that is totally fine. There's no right answer, 
The point is just to be intentional. So once you've gone through those two steps, you can really zoom out and ask yourself just broadly, like, what do you want to be spending your time and your attention on? Because it's finite and it's zero sum. If you spend your time and attention on one thing, you can't spend it on something else. The stakes are quite high. So if you answer the question with something like, I want to spend more time with my partner or with my kids or on sports or whatever it may be, hold that as your goal. That is your positive intention that all the changes will be designed to help you achieve. That's when we can get into the hacks because now you have a purpose and you have awareness. Some of the hacks I would recommend, all they all have to do with reducing dopamine triggers and reducing ease of access. So on your phone itself, ask yourself, what apps do you have on your home screen? Are you like most people and it's just kind of a hodgepodge of everything that got installed sequentially over time? Is there a mixture of practical apps and the slot machine apps that are overly tempting and a waste of time? Clean it up. I think about the ultimate goal as being to turn your phone from a temptation into a tool. So if there's anything on your home screen you can lose yourself in, get it off your home screen. Even better, delete it entirely. I don't have email on my phone, the email app. I don't have news apps and I don't have social media because I know that those are things that would be likely to suck my in, me in if I were to actually go into them. So clean it up. You can always reinstall your apps. I also recommend experimenting with turning it to black and white to reduce the color dopamine trigger. Um, and I really, I keep my home screen pretty much entirely bare and I actually launch apps by opening them. But that's the first step. And then in your physical environment, I'd suggest setting boundaries such as establishing where in your home or your work life are no phone zones. Where are you and your companions not going to use phones? Make that decision ahead of time. On trains, you've got quiet cars where people aren't supposed to have loud conversations. And you know you're a jerk if you talk in the quiet car because everyone knows that. So if you can establish no phone zones, you don't have to have a conflict every time someone pulls out their phone in there. And I also highly recommend charging your phone someplace not in your, that's not your bedroom and not using your phone as your alarm clock. Get yourself an alarm clock and a watch. Get it out. I charge my phone in a closet. And if I want to check my phone after my phone goes to bed in the closet, I can, but I have to get up and I've got to go to a closet. It's over there. That's why I'm gesturing. I have to go to a closet. Yeah. I don't want to stand in the closet. So I don't take the phone with me to a comfy chair. I just stand alone in a closet. Believe me, that makes it a lot less likely you're going to get into a spiral on your phone. So those are some practical suggestions I would give people to just start to create more distance from you between you and your phone. And when you do that, the next step that is absolutely essential that we often do overlook is to give yourself easy alternatives for things to do instead, because these habits are deeply ingrained. They're not going to go away. You will feel twitchy. You will feel this compulsion to check. So if your phone normally resides on your bedside table and you're taking the phone away, make sure you put something there instead that matches with one of the things you want to be doing. So if you say you want to read more, put a book or a magazine article there or magazine. If you want to write in your journal more, put it there. If you like crossword puzzles, put something there. Give yourself an alternative because if you don't, you will inevitably slide back into your old habits because that's what habits are. So those are just some concrete suggestions you can start with right now. A bigger suggestion people might want to experiment with when it comes to creating boundaries with their phones and identifying alternative uses of their time is to actually take a full break. You can start a practice that's known as a a digital Sabbath or technology Shabbat, um, which involves actually picking a day each week. Most people do it from Friday to Saturday, where you actually don't use technology with your family, identify which devices you're taking a break from, and then just spend 24 hours without them. And if you're all freaking out right now, that's totally normal, but probably indicates how much you need it. And if you're like me and the many people I've heard from who've gone through this practice, you'll probably have the experience of feeling very twitchy and anxious, horrible, 
for the first night and then maybe even the next morning. But on the, on the day that you take the break, you will be astonished by how time seems to slow down, which is a real thing. It speeds up our perception of time when we're on our screens. So time will slow down. You'll find yourself with this opportunity to do other things. You might not know what they are, but you'll have an opportunity to do other things. And you may find a sense of relaxation occurring that makes it so you don't even want to check your phone at the end of the day. Mm. But, it, but it, the more you're hesitating, the more I encourage it, you try it. And it's a great conversation starter. If there's someone in your life who you know is going to be resistant to the entire idea of questioning their relationships with their phones. Yeah, well, it, it really is a powerful book, Catherine, that you've written. And I know we were talking, you know, off camera. It's, it, I think has changed a lot of people's lives. When I read it, the one thing that was going through my mind is, these are the five people I've got to give it to as soon as I'm done with it, right? And so I'm intrigued to know what you've heard from people, how it has changed their life for the better, and I'm, I'm sure around the world. Hearing from people who have read the book is definitely one of the highlights of my experience surrounding how to break up with your phone. I hear from people all around the world of all ages and all demographics who have read the book and say it has changed their life. And as a writer and a person, I mean, what better feedback could you possibly get you know, I, I've gotten repeated emails from a teenager in Italy who's been telling me about his struggles with social media. Yeah, I hear from teenagers all the time, I've, all generations. And I, and I have surveys on my websites that where I ask people what they're struggling with. And I just want to share with your viewers that whatever you're struggling with when it comes to technology and whatever effects you suspect it might be having on you, you're not alone and you're right. I mean, people say things like, I want my attention span back. I feel like an automaton. I feel like I am never present with my friends or my family members, or I don't spend time on the things that I care about. I feel out of control. You know, I want my life back. So it's a big deal. You're not alone. And for me, it's just been so wonderful to learn that a project I started to try to address an issue I, that I myself was struggling with is actually out there in the world and helping people. I just can't tell you how happy and fulfilled that makes me and how motivated it me. Just two, two sort of groups I want to um, dig into. One, people with kids and two, teenagers, right? I think that, you know, people with kids really struggle because they feel like they're missing out on watching their kids grow. A lot of my friends that have got kids are always really angry with themselves by how much time they're spending on their phone and how much time they're not spending parenting and being present. Uh, what, what advice would you give to the, to the parents out there? I think the advice I would give to parents who are struggling with feeling that they themselves are spending too much time on their phones would be that they should listen to that voice inside themselves that is having that concern while at the same time trying not to beat themselves up for water under the bridge. In the field of mindfulness, awareness is the whole goal. If you are aware of what is happening, how it's making you feel, you are succeeding. So give yourself some credit for that. But the next step is, what do you want to do with that awareness? And I like the way that you phrase that question, because a lot of times people will bring up the subject of kids in terms of what can parents do to control their kids' screen time without recognizing that the first step is really to take a look at their own screen time and their own habits, because we are all role models and we can't possibly ask our children to do things that we ourselves are acting as if we're incapable of doing. So I think it's an important wake-up call to recognize that the way that we interact with our devices is having an effect on some of the absolute most important relationships in our lives, whether it's our children or our partners or spouses or what have you. And then the next step is to make the commitment to yourself and to those people to demonstrate your love by actually taking action. 
Well, and look, in the other group as teenagers, you know, I know that young people struggle with being connected to their phone. You know, what, what advice would you give to, to young people? The advice I would give to young people is to look into themselves about how this is making them feel. I think that non-teenagers, like adults, tend to not recognize how self-aware people are when they're teenagers and their capacity for recognizing when something is making them feel empty and bad. I hear from teenagers all the time who are very aware of how social media in particular is impacting them and they don't like it. I think the challenge, of course, is what do you do about that? And I know that there is an increasing movement of young people around the world. For example, there's an organization called lookup.live for live, spelled the same way, in the U.S., founded by teenagers that is all about bringing awareness to some of the negative effects of social media in particular and then offering alternatives with the ultimate goal that it should be more cool to have an actual life than it is to be an influencer on Instagram. So I think that teenagers should have the self-confidence to know that any instinct they're having about how this is affecting them is worth paying attention to. And also to know that there are truly very bad consequences to living our lives as performances. That's true for for teenagers and adults alike. And you can see it in the increasing rates of mental health issues, such as anxiety and depression, even suicidal ideation. So I think that while there's no right answer about how much screen time is correct, there really is a lot to be gained from being aware of your screen time, perhaps inviting some of your friends to join you in this conversation exploration, and then making an experiment out of trying to put down your phone or get off social media for a little bit to try something new. I guess I would also say there's a whole world out there and it would be such a shame to miss it. I think it's wonderful. If you are young and you have the self-awareness to recognize that you are spending a lot of your life on your phone, that's wonderful because you still have your whole life ahead of you. You can change course and actually do something fun and meaningful with it instead of reaching the end of your life and being like, wow, I spent a lot, you know, I had 50,000 followers on Instagram. No one wants that other tombstone. That is totally meaningless. Yeah. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we wanted to do this series is, is to create community, right? Like there's so many people that are sharing this pain and anguish around their phones, young, old. And I think if nothing else, you know, what the book has done is really created a movement towards finding your tribe and your community and how important that is and in, in, to, to enjoying our lives, right? I think it's very important to have a sense of community, first of all, as you well know, it's absolutely essential to our health and mental health and physical health. And I think there is a huge community of people who are having the same concerns and working through the same struggles. But when you go out and you see everybody with their nose buried in their phones, it can be hard to recognize that you're actually not alone. It can be very isolating. And so often I hear from people who will say things like, I don't want to be on my phone in the middle of a dinner party, but everyone else pulls out their phone. And so I feel awkward. And what do I do? I pull out my phone. So be strong. And I think one of the most important things that we can do is to talk with other people. That's why I'm so thrilled to be doing this interview with you, to have conversations so that we all can begin to address this enormous influence on our lives. As a side note, um, there's a woman named Tiffany Schlain who wrote a book called 24-6, which is about the practice of taking a digital Sabbath or a tech Shabbat that she's had for the past 10 years, including with her now teenage kids. She's the founder of the Webby Awards here in the States. So she's, and she's a filmmaker. So she's very tech savvy and loves technology, 
but she writes very eloquently and inspirationally about what this practice has done for her and her family. So for any viewers out there who are curious about this idea of this practice, but don't think you possibly could do it or your kids would never go along with it, I recommend checking out her book. It's a good read. It's very practical. Epic. Well, well, well a couple of things. We're just kind of, we're doing a, some sort of quick fires, but one of the things okay. that we, we get asked about a lot is sleep and the phone and the relationship to sleep uh, is a big one, right? Our phones are messing up our sleep so badly. And if you stop to think about it for just like one second, it becomes really obvious what some of those reasons might be. First of all, we're staying up later than we would otherwise looking at stuff on our phones. Second, the stuff we're looking at our phones is not like, I don't know, meditation sequences or ocean waves crashing on a beach. We're looking at the news. We're looking at work email. We're looking at social media. We're amping ourselves up right when we're supposed to be relaxing. Third, we're exposing ourselves to light. It's, (laughs) first of all, it's blue light, right? So that's actually the same type of light as daylight. When you expose your brain to daylight, it tells your brain, unsurprisingly, that it's daytime and that you should be awake. And it affects the release of melatonin, which is what we need in order to wind down. So essentially, if you are looking at your phone right before bed, you're giving yourself jet lag. And that is true even if you've got a blue light filter because you're still looking at this stimulating content with a light right next to your face. So please stop doing that. And that's a big deal. Sleep is a big deal because it is well-established, not controversial at all, that a lack of sleep, which terrifyingly is defined as anything less than seven to eight hours a night, is associated with a much higher risk in all sorts of health conditions you know, obesity, type 2 diabetes, dementia, cancer, cancer, heart attack, stroke, the list goes on. They're all the same conditions that are associated with elevated cortisol levels because guess what? When you don't get enough sleep, it messes up your cortisol levels. So all of the health risks that are associated with one of those things are associated with the other. If you do one thing differently, get your phone out of your bedroom, get yourself an alarm clock and get yourself something restorative and relaxing to do before bed. Wow. Wow. And Wow. That is, that was an incredible download on sleep, Catherine. And and I just want you to give another download on the new book that you're working on, which I think is, is, is such a great bridge to what we're talking about. My new book is called The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. It is coming out in the U.S. in late December and hopefully in Australia and New Zealand soon thereafter. It is a direct offshoot of how to break up with your phone because here's the thing. Once you start spending less time on your phone, you're going to end up with more time for the rest of life. And if you're like many people, including myself, you may not remember what you liked to do with your time before you spend so much of it on your phone. And if you're like me, that may result in a mini existential crisis on your couch where you think to yourself, oh my God, I like to think of, my, think of myself as an interesting, interested person. I can't think of anything to do other than scroll through some stupid thing on my phone. And that in turn might inspire you to write a book about <laughs> the quest to rediscover what you actually want to do with your time. Basically what happened to me is that I started asking myself the same question I'd ask to people who helped me research how to break up with your phone, which was, what's one thing you say you always want to do, but supposedly don't have time for? And in my case, my answer to that question was learn to play the guitar. I have owned a guitar since college, but I never actually learned to play it. I ended up signing up for an adult guitar class near my house and met a bunch of other adults who also wanted to learn to play the guitar. We met Wednesday nights, and I just soon realized that it wasn't just that I was learning guitar. I was also feeling more energetic and more happy and more alive. And I was trying to figure out what is the source of this energy? What is this force? 
And I eventually realized that I was having fun. And I became obsessed with the concept of what fun is and how to have more of it. And I ended up writing a whole book about it. And that is what The Power of Fun is about. Well, it's, you know, we, we can so easily go into the doom and gloom of our modern world and our phones taking over. But listening to you talk, the world that we're creating now is one of great hope and excitement and optimism. And, you know, does it excite you, you know, to, to, to the world we're kind of co-creating together coming out of the back of this pandemic? I'm so excited about the work that you're doing and the invitation to be a part of it. I think that there's definitely two ways to look at our current situation. One is very doom and gloom, and we all get that every time we doom scroll. But the other is one of optimism and hope that we have this moment right now to make a decision about how we want to proceed. We've just had a huge break in normal life. It was very chaotic and involved a lot of trauma for many people. But as things begin to open back up again, what do we want to do? What do we want to do as the saying goes with our one wild and precious life? It's up to us. And I think that reevaluating our relationships with technology can serve as an unexpected entry point into much more meaningful and deeper changes than you'd ever anticipate you'd make as a result of just thinking about this metal rectangle in your pocket. It has totally changed my life. I'm happier and healthier and more alive as a result of this investigation and this process of, process of exploration and change. And I hope that our conversation might inspire some viewers to start that journey for themselves. Yeah, one thing that landed on me, Catherine, was it's not less time on your phone, it's more time in your life. It is not less time on your phone, it is more time in your life. So the question is just, what do you want to spend that life on? And I am willing to argue that none of us on our deathbeds are going to look back and wish that we had spent more time (laughs) on social media. So well said, Catherine, and thank you so much for the time. We look forward to talking again, and just congratulations on all the success. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you again for the opportunity to speak with you. And there it is, fascinating conversation. And for more from Catherine, she's the founder of an amazing resource, screenlifebalance.com. Go and check it out. If you like this interview, the ask would be to share it with someone that you know who loves their phone just a little too much. It is a challenging thing to do, no doubt, to change our relationship with our phone, but it starts with a small step. Whether it's leaving it charging in the kitchen rather than by your bed, or one that I've been trialing, which is taking a break with a digital free day on the weekend. Whatever works with you though, please share it with us on Instagram or online at wearewellbeings and wearewellbeings.com. And if there is a subject matter that you'd like to see us take on, let us know as well. Beyond that, please leave us a review. It certainly helps. Uh, Subscribe, you know the drill. Thank you to AIA Vitality. Until next time, let's support each other as best we can and ask the question, how can we grow through this? instead of just go through it. We'll see you next time.